Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Equipping Hour. Um, we are going to... <coughs> Thanks for joining. We are continuing our Old Testament survey today. Um, last week we went through Kings, and today we're going through... Excuse me. <coughs> the Book of Chronicles. Um, but of course, before we begin, let me pray for us and uh, the time that we have. <coughs> Father God, we thank you for reigning so sovereignly over the whole world. Uh, Father, we we ourselves are, are sinful and broken, um, and we live in a broken world. Um, and oftentimes it, we, fear, we feel powerless. Um, we feel like things are out of control. But Father, we praise you for you reign <coughs> not only um, in wisdom, but in power. Um, and you reign for your good purposes. So I pray that even today as we go through the book of Chronicles, uh, that we would marvel at your extensive and good plan uh, for redemption. I pray that you use me and help me to speak clearly um, so that uh, our friends here may able may be able to marvel at the truths that you have for us. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so welcome back again. Uh, last week you heard uh, me teach on the Book of Kings, uh, and just the recap. Overall, it was a it was a pretty bad time in Kings. We studied through uh, King Solomon and all these subsequent kings, and then of course the the kingdom of uh, the greater nation of Israel splitting and dividing into the northern and southern kingdoms, and then eventually we know, uh, as we learned last week, that their repeated disobedience is what led them to destruction, um, led them to their eventual exile. Um, But we know that it was because the Lord had ordained it to be so. We know that the Lord sovereignly orchestrated everything to that point, Um, and even in destruction and exile, the Lord also graciously preserves hope and preserves a people um, a line through Judah for the people, the nation of Israel. And so that brings us um, to today as we get into the book of Chronicles. Um, it's not so much a continuation, um, more so a, a writing. Um, so we know that the, the book of Kings is the last book of the former prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and here we have the book of Chronicles, which is the last book of the um, the writings portion of the Hebrew Bible. <coughs> and it just so happens that Chronicles is also the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So if you were to flip um, in your Hebrew Bible to the very last book, it would be Chronicles to cap it all off. Um, and again, similar to Samuel and similar to Kings, uh, Chronicles, even though it's split up in our English Bibles into two uh, two sections, we have the first and second Chronicles in our English Bibles. It is, in fact, one whole book, um, as it's originally intended to be. Um, but just for the length, it was split into two. <coughs> and today, um, we'll spend a good amount of time on the background, uh, just because there's a lot of unknowns that we'll come to see 
in terms of authorship and uh, dating. Um, but as some of you guys may have already read Chronicles, you might already be wondering certain questions and wondering how maybe something along the lines of like, how is it any different from Kings? Um, what are the differences? What What is the, the point of writing Chronicles if it's so similar to Kings? And I'm going to make sure to address that and we're going to flush that out for most of our equipping hour. Um, so yeah, let's get into the background, um, starting with the authorship of Chronicles. So you'll hear me throughout today's lesson refer to the author as the Chronicler. Um, that's just one of the names that people attach to him because we really don't know who he is. There is, again, we have an unknown author of an Old Testament book. Uh, we have some clues as to who he might be in terms of his influences and his background. In terms of a name, we, we really don't have one, again. Um, according to Jewish tradition, uh, last week in the book of Kings, that was ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah, that we kind of debunked that. And this week, um, or for the book of Chronicles, the Jews hold to that uh, Ezra, actually, the prophet Ezra wrote Chronicles and the book of Ezra Nehemiah. So um, that's what they hold to, uh, but again, it's, it's, uh, it's a claim that's not backed by too much uh, evidence. Uh, their reasoning for why they choose Ezra include that uh, <coughs> Chronicles and the book of the work of Ezra and Nehemiah, they share vocab and syntax. So a lot of the language, a lot of the wording um, that's used in both books um, Ezra uh, is credited to use those things, uh, use those, use that kind of vocab and syntax, and it's repeated in Chronicles here and there. Um, and then a second reason would be that a lot of the passages in Chronicles have these theological implications or affinities uh, with the focus of Ezra's ministry. For example, if you read through Ezra, um, the prophet Ezra is talking to the exiles and helping them to rebuild the temple after exile. It's been torn down, and uh, the, the prophet Ezra is uh, bringing God's word to them and instructing them on how, about, how exactly to go about rebuilding the temple. Um, as we'll see in Chronicles, there's a lot of focus on the temple here. Uh, so yet another point that uh, the Jewish tradition would draw on. And then finally... Um, the pro-Ezra stance kind of focuses on the closing of Chronicles. Uh, at the end of Chronicles, uh, we zero in on Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, um, and people cite that as being something attributed to Ezra because the book of Ezra opens with, again, with the, uh, the reign and the king of Persia, Cyrus. And so those are the kind of the things that people would point to, to say, oh, maybe Ezra wrote this book. Um, but none of those claims, although there are a couple, are really all that substantial. For example, the literary devices, the vocab, the syntax that people point out, there's, there's not really a significant amount. There's not enough for there to make that claim. Um, there's not enough overlap between the literary features. In terms of theology and theological perspectives, um, there are even differences there. We have Chronicles uh, that highlights the importance of prophets and their preaching. 
Um, Chronicles also very heavily emphasizes and uh, always pays homage to uh, the Davidic line and the the people of Judah that God is preserving. Um, but that's not the case in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we also have Chronicles holding Solomon, as we'll see l- later, in a, in pretty good standing. Um, Chronicles, uh, I'll let you in on a little bit right now. Chronicles holds the kings in a pretty good lighting. Um, even though last week we saw how sinful they all were, uh, Chronicles, the chronicler actually writes them in a way that kind of omits a lot of their sin. Um, and so reading Chronicles, you wouldn't really know that they're all that sinful. But in Nehemiah, uh, Solomon is shown for his his true ways and his evil in how he uh, pursued women of other cultures, of other nations. And so... <clears throat> With that, we kind of have like the, a little bit of a rebuttal of people who would hold to Ezra as being the, the author of Chronicles. It's a lot safer just to say that we don't know. Um, but for the sake of um, conciseness, uh, we'll, we'll, just me- we'll just refer to the author as the chronicler, as uh, many other authors have and writers have referred to him that way. <clears throat> And then, of course, the decree of Cyrus, I forgot to mention, um, that people hold to as being the connecting device from from Chronicles to Ezra, that uh, decree of Cyrus or the, the king of Persia, people hold to that as the connecting kind of theme that connects the two books. Uh, but it's pretty clear that that could just be for the sake of continuity. We're just picking up from where uh, one author left off and continuing on the story in Ezra. So that reasoning doesn't have much basis either. Um, so now that we have clearly put ourselves in the unknown for who he is, um, there are some things that we can hold to and infer from reading Chronicles, uh, some things about this author, about this chronicler that we can infer. And one of the things um, was that he was probably a Levite, probably from the tribe of Levi. <coughs> The reason for this, of course, is as we read through Chronicles, uh, there's a lot of focus on the temple and the priesthood. Uh, We'll see, of course, Solomon, uh, as his story is recounted, he builds the temple. King David, before him, prepares lots of people and and puts things in line for the building of the temple. Um, David organizes priests and the, uh, the tribe of Levi, uh, for purposes for the purposes of the the later temple to come, and so we see that the chronicler himself is uh, puts a lot of focus on the tribe of Levi, and he uh, he mentions their duties and gives them much time and attention uh, in this book, and so that indicates there's a there's a fair chance that he he himself is from the tribe of Levi. Another thing that we can infer about our chronicler. Um, is that he's probably among the leaders of Israel. Um, he wrote the book of Chronicles, drawing from many resources. Uh, he drew from the books of Samuel and Kings, of course. As we'll see, the narrative is very similar. Um, so he had to have drawn from those narratives. Um, and the prophetic books that were not part of the canon. So there are lots of books that are referred to as the Chronicles of Samuel, the Chronicles of Nathan, the Chronicles of Gad, uh, the history of Nathan the prophet, the prophecy of 
ahesia, visions. So our chronicler, um, in addition to drawing from Samuel and Kings, he goes back uh, to these resources uh, of these prophets and draws uh, and draws his writing from these sources. He he relies on them and he takes from uh, the information that they're providing, uh, the prof- the prophetic information that they're providing, and includes them into the book of Chronicles for his end result. Um, and there are just some other things. Uh, I came across this thing called the Royal uh, a- Annals, uh, A-N-N-A-L-S, the Royal Annals. Basically, essentially, they're just yearly or historical records uh, that he would have to draw upon. Um, but he, he would have to be someone uh, in power, someone, uh, a leader among the Israelites, in order for him to access these records and thus be able to include them into the Book of Chronicles. Um, so some of these records include, you'll see mentioned in the Book of Chronicles, there's a mention of the Book of the Kings of Israel, or the Book of the Kings of Israel and Judah. And these are those royal uh, annals that he's uh, referencing to. Um, <clears throat> so we have this list of sources that he draws from. We have Samuel and Kings, we have these prophetic books, we have these records, um, and you might ask, why is he why is he drawing from so many records? Why why is he drawing from so many places? And we believe that he's drawing from these many these so many places to create uh, and write the book of Chronicles for the sake of trying to be as accurate and as faithful to the history of Israel as possible. Uh, we'll see a little bit more as to why exactly he's writing about the history of Israel. <clears throat> But he's doing so with a heart of faithfulness. He wants to maintain uh, maintain a true history and present that to his audience, which we'll learn is uh, are the exiles. Um, and then through the 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 genuine and true history that he rewrites or he reaccounts for, uh, he's hoping to convince his audience of um, his theological stance, which we'll learn that he also has. Um, so that's a little bit on the chronicler himself. Uh, any questions so far on the chronicler? Any <coughs> any comments? Aaron. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm actually not sure, but Tim is nodding. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Any other comments or questions? <clears throat> All right, so let's get into the dating. Um, so last week, Kings, uh, we learned, was written probably after, uh, soon in the midst of exile, in the midst of uh, the southern kingdom being in exile in Babylon, uh, based on a, a number of factors. And then this week, for the book of Chronicles, um, Again, we don't have a, a strict time frame or a range of dates that we can draw from, but from reading the book itself, you can kind of make these markers, these uh, these en- these uh, end markers of the range. And then the f- so the first one, the earliest time it could have been written, uh, is 515 BC. So the the early end of that range is 515 BC. And how do we know that? 
is because of uh, Zerubbabel, the character Zerubbabel. He's mentioned actually in the genealogies uh, in chapter 3 of First Chronicles, uh, verse 17 to 24. There's a genealogy of the tribe of Judah, and Zerubbabel uh, appears in there. And there's two, two, two generations that come after him, and this character is significant because he ends up being someone who leads the exiles out of, uh, out of their exile. When they are released, he's one of the men tasked, tasked to govern them and lead them in their temple rebuilding um, and lead the people back into their homeland. So this character is significant uh, for that purpose and also for our purposes of dating. Um, he, his little, his uh, leadership hovers around the year 515 BC, which is why we use that as our first timestamp. And then the other timestamp we have is that uh, the Book of Chronicles could be written no later than 330 BC. And the reason being, 330 BC kind of coincides with the end of the Persian Empire. Um, and after the Persian Empire, there comes uh, Alexander the Great, who brings in Greek influence um, and takes control of the land of Palestine. And this is significant because uh, this, this book of Chronicles had to be written in the time of uh, Persian rule. <coughs> Reason being that, um, well, if... It had been in the time of Alexander the Great. There would have been Greek influence uh, in the style of Hebrew. Some authors, uh, some scholars think would have been different if it had been influenced by Alexander the Great. Um, so maintaining uh, the time frame up until then, it would be uh, the rule of Persia. And yeah, that's how that coincides is that the, the, the empire of Persia ends up ending around 330 BC, um, and that's how we get that timestamp from 515 to 330. I realized that it's it's 200 years, essentially. It's a really big frame or, uh, or range of time uh, for us to consider authorship. Uh, it might be, yeah, it, it might not be the most uh, comforting thing to know that our, our book was written somewhere in 200 years within there, um, but that's probably our best guess right there between the time of Zerubbabel and the time of the end of the Persian Empire. Um, but with that, we can get into our purpose. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, you might be thinking, why Chronicles, right? Uh, now that we have such a clear idea of who wrote Chronicles and when Chronicles was written, of course, we don't. Um, the pressing question is, why was it written, though? Uh, I mentioned earlier, if you read through it, there is essentially it covers the same narrative as uh, as First and Second Samuel and the Kings. We follow uh, King Saul to David to Solomon to the rest of the kings of uh, Judah. So why 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 did the chronicler write this book? Um, the answer to this begins with his audience. So the chronicler wrote in a post-exilic era. Uh, so following the exile, he wrote this book. Um, and he wrote this book to the once exiled people of Israel. These people were just now being released from exile and returning to their homeland. 
thanks to the decree of Cyrus. Um, but the reason he's writing this uh, because is because things are a little different now that they're exiting exile. If you think back to uh, last week when we were talking about kings, again, there we were just then going into exile after this history, this 400 years of bad kingship. Um, <clears throat> bad kingship coupled with God's punishment and judgment on that bad kingship. Uh, God's just just uh, punishment, God's just uh, cursing for their repeated disobedience. And we left on a very kind of depressing note, I'll say, as we entered into exile. And so those Israelites, those people of Israel, of both kingdoms were probably thinking man like god has god has failed he lost against the the syrians god has lost against the babylonians uh we are being sent into exile and there's no hope uh one israelite might think um so fast forward to now in our book of chronicles the the mood is still kind of sad um but for a different reason the Israelites are now being allowed out of Babylon, and now they might be wondering, are we still God's people? After 70 years of exile, is God still for us? He's left us uh, to be ruled over by pagan kings, um, and now we're being released, but there's there's like a sense of confusion as to where they should go or what they should do. Um, and so the chronicler is writing to these kind of people, Right, so they're writing to these, uh, writing to this post-exilic nation of Israel in mind, recounting their past ways in a way that highlights the answer to that question. He heavily relies on Samuel and Kings, and he pulls up from many other sources and references uh, with a message. Right, he's not just purely recounting history and telling them, "Hey, in case you forgot what happened to you guys, here's all this history that I'm going to throw at you." But he's writing this history in this book, in the book of Chronicles, with a specific theme and message. He has a theological message that he wants to convey to his audience. (laughs) Um, The same stories and the same characters are being presented, but from a different perspective to prove the point that while the circumstances have changed for Israel, that God and his calling for them has not so that is the purpose for Chronicles. Even though the circumstances have changed for Israel, God and his purposes and his calling for them has not. God, being their same God, still claims them as his people, still upholds his covenant with David, and is still calling them to faithful obedience. So just for the matter that they've been sent out to exile for 70 years, uh, God seemingly have seeming, seemingly have abandoned them. Uh, the Israelites needed reminders that God is still the same God. God did not fail; He did not lose. But this was all part of His plan, and He is still their God, and He is, and they are still His people, so long as they obey and live faithfully to Him. So, as we we'll, as we go through uh, the Book of Chronicles, we'll kind of see that purpose come out through um, 
seemingly the same stories and the same people, just with a slightly different twist that the chronicler puts on them. Does anyone have any questions on that purpose? Was it clear? Any comments? Tim? Just to draw out, this point you're making is good about, you know, Chronicles is an interesting case of a retelling of history. I think it's the only major case of that in the Old Testament. Um, and it, I think it just helpfully illustrates how we might read the Bible, all the Bible's narratives, thinking that it's simply a telling of events. Um, like the author just has a bunch of events to report. But like what you're saying is true of all narratives in the Bible, which is it's true, but it's not just there because it happened. It's there because there's a theological point that the inspired author is trying to convey. Same, that's why we have four Gospels. None of the Gospels are simply their events. They're all theologically motivated telling of events in Jesus' life. So we can have four Gospels and we can have two tellings of Israel's history. Yeah, exactly. And another point I just want to run back to is that we... We know that the, the chronicler drew from many sources as a way to prove his authenticity and his faithfulness to history. Um, and that's because one could just look at chronicles and say, oh, he, he just wrote a different version. He added things, he subtracted things, and he's making a very biased version of Israel's history. But the fact is that he did his research, he very carefully picked out these events, um, and of course, very carefully presented them the way he did, um, to convey the message that he wants while preserving the authenticity, uh, authenticity of the history that he wants to remind his readers of. Um, so yes, good point. Thank you, Tim. Any other points before, uh, or any questions before we get into the literary breakdown and the themes? <coughs> All right, if not... Let us get into it. So you'll notice um, I combined this week literary breakdown or literary outline and themes together. Uh, just for the sake of, we know that a lot of the narrative will be similar to, to Samuel and Kings. So I don't want to sit up here and give you another repeat uh, of what happened. But I do want to draw out some of the uh, same things that we talked about and some of the differences that the chronicler brings out that will help us to understand his theological message, his purpose for writing this a little better. Uh, for that reason, we'll go through each section, um, the genealogies, uh, the the reign of uh, David and, and Solomon, and then the, the two kingdoms uh, that are split uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go into those, uh, those three sections of Chronicles, but we'll also target the themes and the, the theological messages within each section. Um, of course, some of the themes overlap and go into other sections of uh, this book, but I'm just going to draw them out where I think they come out best and are more apparent in the book of Chronicles. So with that, we can start with genealogies. Um, I'm sure you guys are excited to hear that word because you guys are probably thinking, all right, so there are repeated stories and there are genealogies in this book. I don't ever want to touch Chronicles because that sounds super boring. I could just read through Kings and find all the action and all the, all the drama in there. 
Um, but the genealogies are actually very crucial to the book of Chronicles and very crucial that uh, the chronicler leads with the genealogies um, <clears throat> because they set the stage for the rest of the book. Um, the first three chapters, I'll very quickly uh, run through them. The first three chapters of uh, chrono- Chronicles trace the lineage of David, starting all the way back from Adam. He goes all the way back to Adam and traces David's lineage all the way to the post-exilic descendants of David. So he doesn't even just stop at David, but he goes into and mentions the descendants of David uh, in the tribe of Judah. Uh, For example, like Zerubbabel um, to two generations after Zerubbabel. So if you imagine, like, this is an amazing genealogy from essentially the beginning of man all the way to uh, his audience's current time, the tribe of Judah and where they are then. Um, And then from uh, David's genealogy, the genealogies kind of do a little reset and they trace each of the lines of uh, each of the tribes of Israel uh, starting with Judah again. So we'll see Almost all of the tribes of Israel are mentioned there, and there are genealogies given. Uh, the ones that are missing are Dan and Zebulun, um, but we'll see that tribes of the southern kingdom, which are Judah and uh, Benjamin, are mentioned, of course, but also tribes of uh, the northern kingdom, everyone else minus Dan and Zebulun, are also mentioned in the genealogies, and that's also for good reason that we'll flush out later. And then following... Uh, the 12 tribes. Um, there's a genealogy of Saul, uh, followed by a genealogy of the returning exiles. So we see that the, the chronicler, he had to have referred to some kind of records and some resources to, to lay out all of these people, all the way down to Adam at the very beginning of man, all the way to the people that he's talking to and addressing then in Chronicles. He accounts for each of these tribes. And as we read through the genealogies, though they might seem dry and, and long and the names seem foreign, we get this picture that the, that the chronicler is trying to emphasize that Israel is one nation. So the chronicler uses the genealogies to serve uh, <coughs> several purposes, and he highlights the theme um, that he inserts into the rest of the book, that the, that the theme of Israel is that Israel is one nation. Over and over again, he actually calls Israel, all Israel, in the book of Chronicles. Uh, He uses this phrase, all Israel, uh, 19 times to be exact. And he's using this as a way to unify Israel uh, in an ideological sense. Uh, They still are very dispersed and scattered uh, practically and realistically in his time. But he wants to remind the people of Israel, the one nation of Israel, that they are in fact one nation, despite all the turmoil, despite all of just what just what happened in Kings, the divide, all this uh, destruction. They are still in fact one kingdom, uh, one people under God. So there are a couple there, as I mentioned, nineteen places in the Book of Chronicles that uh, mention all Israel. I'll just have us read two of them. If someone could read First Chronicles nine, 
verse 1. And then someone else could go to Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 3. So we're having like two opposite ends of Chronicles. Uh, and we'll see this all Israel phrase come up. So First Chronicles chapter 9. Thank you, Tyler. Verse 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Thank you. So even there, uh, the chronicler mentions where he gets that information from the, the book of the kings of Israel. Um, and he talks about the all Israel again. So whoever has Second Chronicles 35, verse 3... He also said to the Levites who taught all Israel, and who were holy to the Lord, but the holy ark and the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built, will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now, your God and His people, Israel. Gotcha. Thank you. So again, if we just think back to where we just came from, we just came out of exile, and why were we exiled um, separately? It's because the the kingdom divided because of Israel's disobedience, because of God sovereignly ordaining them to split and thus be destroyed and thus be exiled to foreign lands. This is it's a very clear picture of division that we are left with at the end of Kings. But the chronicler comes in with this phrase, all Israel, to really hit home the point that you guys are still one nation, even though you don't feel like it, even though everything is strange and confusing, everything feels foreign and you feel lost, God, in his sovereign plan, is still intending you and has never, in God's eyes, you guys have always been one kingdom to him. You are one people to God. Um, so nothing's changed. The chronicler not only preserves the continuity of God's people from Adam to their post-exilic era, but even in the wake of the tragic split, God wants to hammer home exactly that identity, that they are the united nation. They are one, and they are one in God's eyes. <clears throat> any other, do you guys have any questions on that? Anything that's confusing as to how that works? Yes, Josh. So when they're, um, it's, is it just Judah and Benjamin that's in exile, right, with Babylon? So they're, they're the ones that he's, Jonathan is writing to, because the other tribes were taken by Assyria. So is it just those two tribes that he's essentially writing to? Yeah, good question. Um, he is writing to all the exiles. Um, so eventually, uh, though there's not many who are exiled to Assyria from the northern kingdom, there are still some remnants, and uh, he's very much calling them uh, to attention in his book of Chronicles as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, does that answer your question? Any other comments?
Alright, if not, we finished up our, our discussion the genealogies. We see how the Chronicler intends for this, one, this theme of one nation to come out of our genealogies. And we'll see that um, throughout the Book of Chronicles. As we, as we saw, there are many instances where he uses the phrase all Israel throughout the book. Um, even as we read up until the, the reign of Josiah where uh, this phrase is used, he's, he's wanting to not just use the gene- genealogies themselves to uh, hammer home this point, but also just the history that he's portraying and recounting to the Israelites um, is, uh, is for the purpose of uniting them uh, in heart. So as we move on from the genealogy, we, we enter this portion that seems very familiar, and it's David and Solomon's reign. Um, and this spans First uh, Chronicles 10 to Second Chronicles 9. Um, and this is the section where we really start seeing the similarities <clears throat> from the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. It's very clear that the, the chronicler draws from those two sources. Um, for example, the Lord's covenant with David, um, followed by David's prayer and response in, in First Chronicles 17, it's practically identical um, to what's recorded in Second Samuel uh, 7 that recounts the same story. Um, Nar- Solomon's narrative is likewise similar uh, to what is written in First Kings, but in a more condensed manner. Um, his reign is uh, expanded upon in, in Kings, but here in Chronicles, uh, the same highlights and the details are there. It's just in a very condensed version. Um, but while the general narrative of each monarch remains, uh, some differences can be found in Chronicles versions, uh, highlighting a bit more of the chronicler's intention to present the both both the kings the way he does. So he he intends to present them in a way, um, as I alluded to earlier, that's not exactly uh, the sinful ways that we saw in Kings. Um, I labeled our next point blessed monarchs as our theme uh, because there's a sense in which the chronicler presents them in a, in a very good light they seem like they're doing well uh, they're doing a good job at reigning and, and ruling over their people uh, they're doing a good job at obeying God um, and thus they are blessed in their obedience and this is one of the main things that the chronicler is highlighting for uh, David and Solomon and thus subsequent subsequent kings that come after them um, is the fact that Judah and the line of uh, the line that comes from David and Solomon is a blessed people is a blessed tribe um, God's hand is over them God's favor is with them um, <clears throat> we'll see a little bit that the chronicler doesn't deny that they're sinful at all uh but emphatically, he, he emphasizes the, the good parts of their reign uh, to prove their point, uh, to prove the point that he wants to make later on. <coughs> um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get into the blessed monarchs, and we'll, we'll instantly notice, again, that their individual sins and the troubles of these kings are really largely omitted for David. There's no mention of Bathsheba or Uriah, uh, one of the big sins that we know of, of David. Uh, there's no mention of the various forms of rebellion or betrayal that sprung up for David. We know for David, uh, his reign wasn't all that easy. He was constantly on the run, 
Uh, people were seeking his life, and people were revolting against him. Uh, but in the in the chronicles, there's really no mention of this. It seems very peaceful. It seems very smooth. Um, and as we move on to Solomon, again, there's there's no mention of his love for foreign wives. Um, this is the the thing, the sin that prompts God to tear away the kingdom from his hands. There's no mention at all for his his love for foreign wives in the book of Chronicles. And even the transition from David, uh, David anointing his son Solomon to the throne, it really happens without a hitch. If we look in Kings, we know that uh, there was a there's an attempted coup. Uh, David's other son Adonijah basically takes the throne for himself and uh, calls himself king for a little bit. Um, but in Chronicles, there's no mention of that at all. It's a very quick and smooth. Uh, transition from David to Solomon. David anoints Solomon, gives him his words of advice and wisdom, um, advises Solomon on the temple building, and that's pretty much it. There's not much conflict going on there. Um, but still, there there is a little bit of sinfulness that comes in. Uh, really, just the one big sinful act that makes it into the book of Chronicles uh, is David's sinful census towards the end of his reign. Um, but aside from that, both kings appear to be very glorious. And this is done uh, in an intentional way by the chronicler. He portrays them to be glorious, uh, blessed monarchs of Israel. Uh, he highlights each of their reigns. He highlights their victories over enemies, um, their obedience uh, for God's purposes, and God's favor thus being for them and with them through their obedience we know that God gives them favor, um, and this is what the chronicler chooses to highlight and bring out in the book of Chronicles. Um, and these are all parts of chron- the chronicler's version of the story. <clears throat> um, and why does the chronicler do that? Right? Is he just trying to sweep everything under the un- under the rug? Is he trying to hide the the dark past and the dark history? Um, it's not that. But more so as we remember that the Chronicler is writing to these exiles who know what happened. uh, Or even if they need reminding, they don't need to know why they are in exile. They know um, that it's because of the disobedience that they have been in exile. Uh, And as we kind of go back to the beginning where we were asking, what are these... What are these exiles thinking? What are they asking now that they've been released? They're probably wondering where to go, um, who's going to lead them. They're confused as to whether or not they're still God's people. Um, And there's a lot of worry. There's a a lot of anxiousness. And the chronicler is trying to present a hopeful tone to them. The chronicler himself is hopeful and sees the hope and sees God's plan for his people for the returning exiles, and he uses the glorious reigns of the two kings as a way to point to the future. <clears throat> he uses like the very terms, the very um, blessings, and the very uh, terms of obedience and blessing that come with the two kings uh, and these their glorious reigns, and he uses these terms as a way that he points to the future uh, a messianic hope that he points to for the people that are exiting exile. Um, and you can kind of make sense of why he would do that. If these people are coming out of exile, 
they're hopeless. They think that the Lord has abandoned them. Um, the chronicler is here hoping that he'll re-spark their faith in God. He'll, he's hoping and calling them uh, to return to the Lord in hope uh, by reminding them of things in the past. Uh, he doesn't so much remind them of the bad things and the bad things they've done, uh, but he reminds them of God's grace and God's mercy and faithfulness throughout the reign of the kings uh, in the book of Chronicles by bringing out uh, the blessings of the monarchs. Um, so that's why we see so much of uh, the narratives of David and Solomon <clears throat> are really just focused on Solomon's wealth, Solomon's wisdom, uh, David's constant victory over enemies, um, the peace that he has, uh, David's incredible obedience to God's word to prepare for the temple, and Solomon's later obedience to build the temple. All these things are meant to highlight the good parts of the kings as a way to give these exiles hope as they come back to the nation of Israel. Um, and so we see it's not that he's neglecting to tell the, the full and whole history, but he's telling parts of it in, in attempts to further and push his theological message along um, for the comfort and for the purposes of the exiles that come out. Does anyone have any questions on that? Is anyone confused as to how the glories of the, of the reigns of these two kings brings out this hope? Thank you, Smokey. So Smokey's point being that even the prophets will will mention David in the covenant that the Lord has made with David uh, for the purposes of showing who God is to these to the to the audience of the prophets, and then here to the audience that is the uh, that are the exiles returning to the land of Israel. They need to be reminded that God Himself, though He sovereignly sent them to destruction and exile, God himself still maintains his covenant with David. God is faithful to his word, to his servant, and he will bring that to fruition in a later messianic king, of course, 
But he has not abandoned his people because of his character. He is faithful, he is gracious, he is merciful. And thus, that exactly that is what the chronicler is trying to hit home for these um, this exilic, post-exilic audience that he has. <clears throat> Perfect. So we're going to move right along to uh, our second point under uh, David and Solomon, which is the temple. So I mentioned earlier... Uh, that the chronicler himself is probably of the tribe of Levi because he pays so much attention to the temple. And we're going to spend some time here talking about the temple, uh, not so much the the temple building itself and, again, the the details that go into it, um, not so much, as we covered last week, uh, as to what the temple symbolizes, which is the permanent residence of God. But we're going to see the temple as kind of the arena in which uh, the themes of obedience and disobedience come up. Uh, in this case, obedience uh, to God's word. It's kind of the arena in which we get to see both kings exhibit and uh, act out their obedience to God uh, in faith. So if we look <clears throat> in First Chronicles uh, chapter 13 to 16, uh, in those chapters we begin seeing David... He, his efforts to move the ark back to Jerusalem. So the, the temple narrative doesn't necessarily start only when the temple is mentioned and only when uh, Solomon is building the temple actively. But there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. One of them being that the ark um, has to be brought to Jerusalem to later be put into the temple. Um, so that narrative in First Chronicles 13 to 16 covers uh, a bit of David's efforts doing that. Um, <clears throat> and then what follows that is uh, David's preparation. So this part of First Chronicles is a little confusing to me, um, partially because it's, it's the first time all the, the extent of all this preparation is mentioned. In First Kings, there wasn't much mention at all of David's preparations, uh, but here in First Chronicles chapter 22 all the way to chapter 29, um, we get a glimpse at the extensive detail of what David needs to do in order to prepare uh, the people, prepare his son Solomon, and prepare other things for the later building of the temple. Uh, we'll see in those chapters, David organizes different groups of people, uh, like Levites, priests, musicians. He offers uh, he organizes offerings in great detail, all for the purpose of leading the people of Israel into eventually the right worship of God in the temple that is to be built. David's obedience to the Lord in organizing these people is a necessary step for the eventual temple building that Solomon will lead because everything he does kind of sets his son up for success. Uh, without priests or musicians to facilitate right worship, or without the officials or leadership uh, being established, Solomon uh, would probably have a lot harder of a time trying to put the temple together. Solomon's circumstances and situation uh, would not be as lined up, would, would not be as ideal um, for the building of the temple. And so a lot of the legwork that David is doing is incredibly crucial uh, to what we kind of take for granted as, oh, like Solomon has a lot of wealth, has a lot of power and he puts this temple together uh, because God says he would do it. Uh, just because God told David that 
David wouldn't be the one building his, his house doesn't mean that David is let off the hook from doing anything or caring about the temple. God, in fact, has very extensive details uh, of preparation that he wants David to go through before his son Solomon eventually goes through with the actual building of the temple, as we see in Second uh, <clears throat> Chronicles. Um, so it's, though David is not the one to build the temple, uh, much of his prep work pays off. Um, and thus he sets the stage for his son Solomon uh, to be able to build the temple in obedience and bring God's promise of Solomon being the one to build a temple, he brings that to fruition um, much thanks to the, the work of his father and his, the preparation. <coughs> so again, we, we got to ask, like, well, so why are, we, why are we talking about the temple again so much uh, besides the fact that maybe the chronicler is of the tribe of Levi? Again, we see... Um, it's, we're not denying, again, at all that the, the place of God's permanent dwelling is the temple. Um, it's very much the same thing, but the chronicler, again, is kind of shifting the focus to the hearts of the people, the hearts of the king, the hearts of the Israelite people. Um, the temple preparations in the building, again, are this kind of this arena where their hearts are revealed and tested, and God is able to see who is truly obeying in a, in a heart of faith, who is obeying out of a heart of faith in the preparation, in the building, because God wants right worship. Right? All throughout the, the time of the kings, uh, we see people doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, we see even David turning away from the Lord and Solomon turning away from the Lord. Um, and we know that the Lord desires to be worshipped, uh, but in a right way. There's a reason why all these details are so meticulous. There's so much they have to do, and they have to build this place in the right way and come about and offer the right offerings. Um, It's all because the Lord desires righteous and good worship uh, and offerings to himself. Um, We might think it's cumbersome to read through all of it. If you read through uh, David organizing all these people, it seems a little confusing. It seems like a rerun of some of the the genealogies we just finished reading, Um, but they're all for the purpose of putting people in the place to help others worship, people in the place to lead other peoples to worship, uh, like musicians and priests and, and, and leaders. All these people are put into place and organized for the sake of leading the people of Israel into rightful worship of their Lord and King. Um, and so, once again, we're brought to our audience of Chronicles these people who maybe spent their time in exile worshiping other things or in their time in exile doubting who the Lord is, they need this reminder that the temple, though now broken, serves this function. It serves this function as it's something that will reveal to the Lord whether or not your heart is right in the way you worship. Are you worshiping out of faithful obedience, or are you worshiping out of other means and other reasons? So the Lord <clears throat> kind of, or the chronicler uses the temple illustration and the the much narrative on the temple here in the book of Chronicles for this purpose of reminding his people or reminding the exiles that this is what the temple stands for. Of course, the Lord will be with you, but 
the Lord also requires your faithful obedience in worship um, if he is to dwell among you. And so as we, as we close this section, uh, we're, we're looking at the exiles and the returning to Israel, and we ask them, are you going to come back to Israel and worship your Lord rightly? Are you going to, as, we, as we'll see in, uh, as you study some of the prophets, and a lot of the prophets are talking about temple building, uh, we'll see that sometimes the Israelites are not so obedient, even though they've been freed from exile, they return to their land, uh, some of them refuse to rebuild the temple. Some of them refuse to worship God. Um, and we see the same pattern of disobedience. But the chronicler is wanting to kind of jumpstart that question, ask them, are you going to obey the Lord now? Now that you are free, now that you're returning to your land, will you obey the Lord and worship him rightly? And so that's the temple. Anyone have any questions or comments on the, the temple section here? <coughs> Yes. In reading this and other um, details of the sacrificial system, it just again reminds me of Jesus' sacrifice and how huge it was. Because here in Second Chronicles seven uh, four or five, King Solomon offered as a sacrifice twenty two thousand oxen and one hundred twenty thousand sheep. Just that one line is like Jesus. What did you do for us? <laughs> I can't fathom it. Yeah. And uh, praise him for it, nonetheless. Yeah, Patty makes a good point. If you really read into the the organization and then the, the extent of the sacrifices, we're not just offering one lamb here or one goat. We're we're offering up a bunch of animals. It's, it's a huge ceremony, um, all for this temple, uh, for God's permanent dwelling. And as Patty mentions, like this, this pales in comparison to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. If the Israelites were to do all this to have God dwell in, uh, dwell amidst them, what does that mean for how we see Christ's sacrifice on the cross? Like, how much more um, does Christ's sacrifice earn for us? Oh, thank you for that point. <coughs> so we'll go ahead and move right along to uh, the kings of Judah. Um, we'll see... Starting in Second Chronicles 10, all the way to the end of Second uh, Chronicles, the kings of Judah are the ones who are being highlighted here. You'll notice that the, the chronicler focuses on uh, the southern kingdom. Um, some of the northern kingdoms are mentioned like, here and there, uh, but only as they pertain to the reigns of the kings of Judah. Uh, so the, luckily there's no more confusing alternation, no more switching back and forth between the kingdoms. Uh, here in the book of Chronicles, we get a straightforward uh, recounting of the kings of Judah. Um, and some of the kings of Judah in here get extended attention on their reigns. Uh, some kings of Judah who previously got maybe a couple verses in the book of Kings, now they get this extended uh, attention, uh, and the chronicler lays out a little bit more in detail how they reign either doing good or or evil in the sight of the Lord because we know that some of them excuse me still walk in ways that are evil in the sight of the Lord Um, and so with the extended versions of some of our reigns we get to see our next theme which is immediate retribution Uh, I'll go ahead and define this right off the bat and say that immediate retribution is essentially the theme in which 
The chronicler demonstrates that punishment for sin is not always deferred. It's not as in like eventual destruction or eventual exile, but each generation experiences blessing or judgment in terms of their own actions. Um, I had a couple instances laid out for us, uh, but I don't think we have time to get to them. But if you look uh, through the Chronicles, I'll lay out Second Chronicles uh, chapter 13, verse 14 to 15. Um, that lays out how <clears throat> a king of Israel receives victory for being obedient to the Lord. But on the flip side, we see in Second Chronicles chapter twelve, verse one to three, we have the king of king of Judah, sorry, um, receiving defeat uh, at the hand of the, at the hands of the Lord for being disobedient. So again, we have this theme of obedience and disobedience, blessing and curse um, that comes with uh, the Book of Chronicles. Even though they're largely portrayed in a good light, we see that. God will very immediately dish out punishment or blessing to kings depending on their individual reigns and their individual actions. Uh, This is kind of to combat some feelings of the exiles that are coming back. Some exiles that are coming back from Babylon might be asking, why did I get exiled? It wasn't my fault. It It was the kings of my forefathers. It was the kings before the king that was over me that sinned and led me to exile. So why was it me? Why, why did I have to be the one who goes into exile? And so um, the chronicler is introducing this theme of immediate retribution as a way to combat that question. He's essentially saying, responding to them, that, well, your exile, though it was a part of the grand scheme and grand punishment of God for the repeated disobedience of your kings, each king, and thus the subsequent subjects under that king, have their own responsibility to, uh, have their own responsibility to obey the Lord, and disobedience will get them punishment and and judgment from the Lord. So no one can say that it was those people before me that earned me this exile, but everyone is accountable to the Lord in their own way. Um, so that's essentially what immediate retribution is. And the chronicler, throughout Scripture, he very immediately, or throughout the book of Chronicles, uh, very immediately shows the results uh, that the, the people of Israel earn through their, either their obedience or disobedience. He very quickly shows the outcomes of their, of their obedience and disobedience uh, throughout the narrative of Chronicles. <clears throat> Does that concept of immediate retribution confuse anyone? Are there any questions on that? Is retribution that is very immediate? All right. If not, we're going to go ahead and close up our literary outline uh, just with this overarching and kind of summary theme that God is faithful. <clears throat> So as we look through the genealogies, we see that God has, has planned this from the beginning of man, from Adam, and he has preserved someone, preserved a line, a tribe, from all the way from Adam all the way through the bad kings, through exile, 
um, and out of exile comes still a people that he can raise up an, a Messiah through. He has preserved the people through the genealogies, um, through all of time, and that just showcases God's faithfulness. And that's one of the things uh, the chronicler is is trying to highlight, which is uh, God makes his covenant with David. Um, he's planned it way before David, but even after David is gone, and even after the downfall and the the subsequent decline of the kings that follow David, God still faithfully remains or God remains faithful uh, by his own grace and mercy to the, the covenant that he made with David and preserves the people. Um, and so we see that uh, as a way that God's faithfulness is displayed. We also see that God's faithfulness is displayed in how he so abundantly blesses the two kings, the two monarchs. Um, we know from reading uh, Samuel and Kings that these two kings um, do not deserve God's blessing. They have done things that should rightfully have revoked God's favor and blessing on them. But it's very clear that God still graciously blesses them <coughs> and blesses them very abundantly uh, despite their sin. God is a forgiving God. God is faithful again to his covenant. And so it kind of brings us um, <clears throat> to the kings that follow David. And we see that God, even then, he's rightfully disciplined and rightfully punished those who are disobedient. But even then, he still shows them mercy. He carries them throughout exile. Uh, though he seems far from them, he, they have not left, left his sight at all while they were in Babylon and Assyria. Uh, but he shows them mercy by bringing them out of exile and that's where the chronicler is now addressing these people. Um, the Lord has brought you out. He is faithful. He has a plan for you, though it may seem confusing to you, though you may seem lost right now. The Lord has a plan, and his plan, right now at least, begins with him bringing you out of the exile that you yourself deserve. Um, <clears throat> so even in that, even in exile, uh, though... Uh, the people may think that God had abandoned them. God was incredibly faithful to them in bringing them out and thus has even more plans for them. Uh, and we know we, he, the Lord has a messianic plan for them. So with that, we kind of conclude the whole outline of, of Chronicles. Uh, was there anything that anyone needed clarification on? Any, any questions or comments? on all of Chronicles. And not, we're just going to go right into application. I just kind of boiled it down into two very simple points of application that I found I think would be applicable to the exiles coming out of uh, Babylon and, and Assyria, but also to ourselves. We first have uh, this first point of reminding ourselves of God's promises. Um, that's essentially... In, in a nutshell, what Chronicles, uh, what the Chronicler is doing in Chronicles is reminding the exiles of God's promises, of God's covenant with David. Um, and in the same way, maybe we might be going through something um, and we feel hopeless. We feel lost. We feel like the Lord has lost control of the situation. The Lord has abandoned us. Um, but we know uh, in Christ we have, we have God's favor, we have God's grace, uh, we have God's forgiveness and mercy, 
Uh, and really, it's, it's just a matter of reminding ourselves of that. Nothing has changed just because we forgot about God. Um, but we need to remind ourselves and others around us uh, of his faithful promises and that he's faithful to his promises. Um, which brings us to <clears throat> our second point of application, which is um, we ought to pursue daily faith and thanksgiving. Um, similarly, again, we could say the same for the, the exiles or the, you know, the, the Israelites who are returning from exile, um, that they ought to, since returning to their homeland, they should daily come to trust the Lord. Um, they, as the chronicler has kind of outlined for them, the Lord has never left them. The Lord is faithful to them. And thus, they have a reason to trust in the Lord, even through the, the horrors of the, the kingdom splitting and exile. Uh, there's much to give thanks for because the Lord has brought them out. The Lord has planning and has plans to bless them. And for us, we, we see the Lord's plan of blessing in the Christ. Uh, we see the fruition and we see the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. Um, and thus, even even more so, kind of to even to Patty's point earlier, we they saw the need to sacrifice and do all these things, and they see just the glory of who God is through that. But as we look to Christ and recognize the the weight of what Christ has done and who He is, we feel even more so the sense that we ought to worship God uh, and give thanks to Him for who Christ is and who. Uh, who he's given to us in Christ and the things that we've received in that. Um, so hopefully uh, Chronicles did not bore you. It did not seem overly repetitive. Uh, I hope that you can leave today having a better understanding of what exactly the Chronicler's mission is in writing the book. Um, he has a very specific one, and that's just to remind, her, uh, just to remind the, the exiles that God is still the same. God still upholds his covenant with his people um, and God has a hopeful future for his people yeah so with that uh, let me pray to close us Father God we are incredibly grateful um, for this text in Chronicles Uh, Father you reveal yourself in a really powerful way uh, through historical records uh, and through this book, Father, we, we see your works and we see who you are just by reading uh, these scriptures. And God, as, as much as the book of Chronicles has a bend towards uh, the audience at the time, we're able to see that you are a faithful God uh, who reigns over time and whose promises stand um, and whose promises have come to fruition in Christ. Uh, we get to reap the benefits of that reality. And I pray that you'd strengthen us, uh, strengthen our faith, uh, give us lips that will give you thanksgiving each day um, as we reflect on how much more, uh, how much more glorious is our King, how much more glorious uh, is the way that he leads us to worship you, Lord. So we thank you for these truths, and we pray for the rest of today's gathering. Uh, All of this in Christ's name. Amen.